Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, I invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 25. It's good to see you all here this morning. There's a lake out there, and you all have chosen to be here. And that's, and there's maybe one or two golf courses. And that's really encouraging to a pastor um, to see folks that uh, choose on a holiday weekend to come and spend their Sunday mornings in uh, the house of worship. So it's very encouraging. It's good to see you all. Um, if you're visiting with us, you're parachuting into the middle of our Genesis series. And, um, and this morning kind of marks a transition for us because we are headed into the second half of the book of Genesis. We're in chapter 25. There are 50 chapters. And, um, and so we're kind of transitioning. From here on out, it's going to be largely um, a story about Jacob and then Joseph and, um, and that family. And so one of the things that we've seen as we've been making this trek is that God, in the book of Genesis, is dealing with real people with real problems and what we've seen time and time and time again already is that he is a gracious and merciful God. That even though those people that God has chosen and called to himself are failures, God continues to pursue them and to go after them. And this morning's story is not going to be a whole lot different. It's, uh, it really is deja vu all over again. And that's what we're going to look at as we, uh, as we look at this passage. So if you've got your Bibles, I hope you've turned there. Um, if you're looking at a pew Bible, I don't even know what page that is, but you're probably on somewhere around page 23 or 24, and um, and we're going to start reading in verse 19. We'll read down to the end of the chapter. Let's read God's Word together. This is the account of Abraham's son, Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel of Arame- the Aramean from Padan Aram, the sister of Laban the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife Rebekah became pregnant. The babies jostled in each, uh, jostled each other within her, and she said, Why is this happening to me? And so she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment, so they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out, with his hand grasping Esau's heel. And so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. And the boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was a quiet man staying home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. And he said to Jacob, Quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That is why he was also called Edom. Jacob replied, First, sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, Swear to me first. And so he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread 
and some lentil stew. And he ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you this morning for your word. And as we look into it, we pray that our meditations on it and the words of my lips concerning it would be acceptable in your sight. Amen. So far in the book of Genesis, we have seen and we followed the creation of mankind. We've seen the fall of mankind. We've seen the spiral downward which led to the flood. We've seen following all of that in chapter 12, the call of Abraham. Every step of the way, what we've seen, despite man's best efforts, despite him no doubt wanting to do the right thing all along the way, what we have seen is that he just can't seem to get it right. Which really just speaks volumes because what the Bible tells us is that a man's heart, the inclinations of his heart, the Bible says, are always evil all the time. That's the Bible's verdict on who we are as people, all right? And so, despite, you know, man's best attempts, he continually seems to kind of mess it up, if you will. But, and that's the wonderful thing is that there is always this but, we call it the divine but, God is always there pursuing his people. He is always showing grace and mercy. Even in the face of great failure, God is there showing great mercy. That's the most amazing part of the word, right? Is that it really is a, uh, it, it's a collection of human failure, stories about human failure and God's divine, sovereign love, grace and mercy continuing to be shown to them. Up until this point, What we've seen is mainly the life of Abraham. That's what we've been focused on for the last number of weeks. But right away in this passage in the life of Isaac, Abraham's son that he prayed for and waited a long time for, the son of promise, he's on the scene. And what do we find out almost immediately is the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Isaac begins to run into the same sorts of situations that Abraham ran into. Right out of the gate, early in chapter 6, uh, early in chapter 26, even before that, Isaac and Rebekah, uh, we read here in this story, um, you'll see, right? Verse 19, Abraham became the father of Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah. Now, when you jump over, you see that um, it was a number of years before they had these children. Verse 24, the time came for her to give birth. The boys, twin boys were in her womb. The first came out. Verse 26, his brother came out, his hand grasping Esau's heel. He was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. What does that tell us? Well, that tells us that right away, Isaac just like Abraham and Rebekah, had trouble conceiving. Um, and, and that was a great difficulty, as you re- recall, for Abraham. It sent Abraham and Sarah kind of into a tizzy. They took matters into their own hands. They decided that it would be best to um, make the promise happen by Abraham sleeping with Hagar, Sarah's maidservant. 
And so, as you recall, if you were here, that kind of got things messy and made things a little dicey. Well, here is Isaac and Rebekah, 20 years to bear children. Some of the same constraints, some of the same pressures. Early in chapter 26, Isaac pulls the same trick that Abraham pulled when Abraham twice told the ruler of Egypt that his um, that Sarah was in fact his sister. She was, partly, but she was also his wife. And so, remember, they tried that ruse. Well, here in chapter 26, Isaac does the same thing, telling, telling the rulers that Rebekah was his sister. Isaac has trouble with Abimelech. There's quarreling amongst their herdsmen, just as there was with Abraham. And, and so the story begins to take on a very similar flavor. And, and what is the Bible really telling us? By highlighting some of those incidents, here's what we learn. Isaac was just like his dad. That's what we learn. The problems that he encountered in life were just like his dad's problems. The problems that they ran into were the exact same things that we would all have run into. As Yogi Berra once said, it's deja vu all over again. And that's what you read in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 9. What has been will be again. And what has been done will be done again. Because there is nothing new under the sun. There is nothing new under the sun. When you hear that, you can think, okay, Jacob is going to run into the same buzzsaw that Abraham ran into. But you can also begin to personalize it some, and you can reflect on your own life, and you can reflect on the world that we live in. The common refrain is, man, things are bad out there. The world is just in really bad shape. And guess what? The world's always been in bad shape. You just have to be living in it, participating, all right? It's always been in bad shape. That's, the, that's our story. And there's nothing new under the sun, nothing new happening that hasn't already happened before. And listen, the writer of Ecclesiastes tells us that's true. The waters will continue flowing, the rain will fall, the streams will roll into the sea, and the sun will come up again, and it will just keep happening. And there is nothing new under the sun. Listen, the writer of Ecclesiastes says, If that's all that grips your heart, then life will be a very meaningless existence. Because it is very much, right? Nothing new is going to happen to you that hasn't happened before. Just read your family lineage. Read your family tree, all right? Just go back and look. Just read some biographies of men that have lived and women that have lived long years ago. And guess what you'll find out? Your life and my life, not a whole lot different from theirs. We live in a different era. We have, you know, light bulbs instead of candles. But the life circumstances are going to be largely the same. And you know what? That'll consume you. That'll, that'll, that'll make things feel very meaningless to you if, if you feel as if and, and as if life seems as if it's just one series of events after another and they've already all happened to people that came long before you. Unless, unless that situation begins to take on 
a new and significant meeting, right? Because it takes on that when you begin to see that you are part, as you are in Christ, of a larger, bigger whole. This first point that we're looking at as we're thinking about it is that the struggle endures. The struggle that began in the beginning continues on in our lives today. And it really does endure. Why? Because you and I are sinners. Because our father is Abraham and Adam. And we're just like them. And so we continue to live exactly the way that we lived. And the same struggles are our struggles. And we see them happening right here in Isaac's life. And then we will see it will progress into Jacob's life. And then it will progress into Joseph's life. And on it will go. And listen, the pain is real. When you and I make mistakes, when we struggle, that pain is very real. Just as it will, and you will see how real it is in Jacob's life. But it is a struggle. And it's not a failure. Here's the difference. And here's what I want you to see from that. Life is a struggle, and what you don't want it to be is a capitulation. You don't want it to be a failure. You don't want to give in. You don't want it to just be done. You don't want, you don't want to give up on the struggle. That makes sense. And what is the struggle? The struggle is that you recognize who you are as a sinner, like Adam, like Abraham, and that you are in the fight. You are in the battle. Listen, if your struggles are merely one in a long line of many and they have no redeeming value, right? if you don't learn from them, if you don't grow from them, if you don't progress in your faith as a result of who you are, if you aren't driven to your knees, driven to the supper as a result of your failure, then or as a result of your struggle, then it becomes failure in your life. Right? Then it's a capitulation. Then you just give in. Then it's just a long series of events, and they just flow into the sea, and the sun will rise, and the sun will set, and you'll die, and you'll go on your way, and that's it. But throughout the Bible, and in Jacob's life, what we're going to see is he is in a life-and-death struggle. He is wrestling with God. Okay, Genesis chapter 32, we're going to see God come down and meet him and permanently change him for the rest of his life. So my question to you this morning is, do you know the struggle? Is it real in your life? Remember what we've always said? Acknowledging yourself to be a sinner is not what kills you. But a failure to acknowledge yourself as a sinner will ultimately lead to death. And that's the reality. It isn't our sin that kills us. It's not the acknowledgement of our sin that kills us. What, would, what is the death knell to us is to act as if we're not that. When all of the evidence around us is what? That we are. Let's look at our second point. I want you to see the promise that disrupts. We're going to move quickly through these next two. The promise that disrupts. Rebecca is pregnant. She's pregnant with twins. There's already... So in her womb... 
what we're led to believe is there is a battle taking place. The twins are going at it. Uh, I, I I just thought maybe that was normal, right? Two babies. I remember Jody being pregnant with our children and the and the tossing and turning. Well, two of them are in there, and Rebecca feels as if something really you know terrible is going on with her, um, because she has this question to God, and the the best understanding is that she seems to be asking God. What's happening? The text is really kind of strange. Literally, it reads, if so, why am I? It's an incomplete thought in the actual uh, Hebrew. If so, why am I? And so there's kind of a little bit of debate. What, what was it that Rebecca was saying? But it's lodged in between two prayers. So you have the prayer of Isaac, and then you have her calling out to God on the other side. And so what she seems to be saying is, Lord, why why me? Why did you smile on me by letting me bear children, but now you're frowning on me by having this war go on within me? What is happening to me? <clears throat> and so as she cries out to God, God comes and he answers her. He meets her. And this is his response. <clears throat> you can see it there in verse 20. Hold on. Three. In verse 23 God comes and he says this, two nations are in your womb, two peoples from within you will be separated, one people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. Now, this is God's oracle to Rebecca and to Isaac, setting in motion his plan, all right? So he's coming and he's saying, listen, you've cried out to me, here's what's going on. And he shoots straight with Isaac and Rebecca. It's not their plan. It's not the world's plan. It's God's plan. And he tells them, this is what is happening and what will happen. And what does he tell Rebecca? He tells Rebecca essentially this. All of your customs, all of your traditions, whoop, right out the window. Right? The way that it normally happened in that culture was the firstborn son got a double portion of the estate. He was the heir. He was the one that carried on the family name and traditions and all of those things. And in this instance, the Lord comes along and says, nope, the younger will rule over uh, the older. The older will be subservient to the younger. And so they come out, and Esau comes out first. He's the firstborn. And... and um, Jacob comes out clutching his heel as if he were trying to pull him back in and come out first himself or to trip him up. And what do we learn? Here's here's what we learn. That God had chosen before the twins were born to bless Jacob and not Esau. It's just what the text tells us. Before they were born, God had chosen to bless Jacob and not Esau. That means before anything had ever happened, God decided that Jacob would be the son of promise and not Esau. Now, listen, I was telling Colin, my 19-year-old, we were talking, and I said, you know, really, um, Presbyterians are known for one thing, really, and that's predestination. Those Presbyterians believe in predestination, right? I can count on this hand the number of times the text has had me preach on predestination. But this morning, you're here, and guess what? It's one of them. 
Some of y'all wanted to wail like that. And he just did it for you. That was awesome. All right. So let's talk about it. Because some of you are thinking, some of you are, are, are thinking this. Okay. All right. Well, what that means is that God is outside of time and space and he's looking in and he knows what's going to happen. And so he's just given an oracle based on what he already knows. I want to take you to Romans chapter nine. If you have your Bibles, you'll want to turn there. Because in Romans chapter 9, the Apostle Paul picks up on this idea and he uses the story of Jacob and Esau to talk about Israel and the church. He talk about Jews and Gentiles and what God is doing with them. And what he's trying to do in, Ro- in, in, this, in this letter to Romans at this point is he's trying to instruct the Israelites. He's trying to, he's trying to convince them that what God is doing, God can do. Because it's his plan, because he's ordained it from before the world ever began to be both the God of the Jewish people and the God of the Gentile people and to bring them all together and their father be Abraham. And so in chapter 9, Romans 9, beginning in verse 10, let's read a couple of these verses. He says this, not only that, but Rebekah's children, Jacob and Esau, were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Verse 11. Yet, before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Verse 13. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, Paul anticipates your question, okay? He anticipates our little fellow's question up here. What shall we say? Is God unjust? All right, if God does that, he must be unjust because we have free will. Those are the kinds of questions. Paul anticipates it. Verse 14, what shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Verse 16. It does not depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. I don't, listen, I don't propose to you that I understand how it is that God is just and sovereign and He does what He does in this passage. I don't know. All I know is what the Bible teaches. And what the Bible seems to be teaching us about Jacob and Esau is that that promise that God set in motion was his will from before the foundation of the world, and it didn't depend a whit on what Jacob or Esau did. He set it in motion. It was his desire. It was his plan. Now look, first... Thinking about it, we're just trying to take the word as it comes to us. Don't let it just set your hair on fire. Try to think about what God is telling us here, what we're learning. And what we're first learning is that without God's intervention, without God stepping in, 
we're all Esau's. We're all we're all destined to the trash heap of destiny if God doesn't intervene somewhere along the way and change hearts. If He doesn't do it, we'll never do it. And so that's one of the things that you see is God is the one who has to come to us. And in Jacob and Esau's life, he comes and he says that this is the way it's going to be. Um, because the Bible says, Ephesians chapter 2, that we are dead in our sins and our trespasses. And if we're dead, there's only one thing going to make us alive, and that's God. Now, let's jump down, because what we're talking about is this promise was disruptive. How was it disruptive? Here is how it was disruptive. The promise comes, and it comes to Isaac and Rebekah, and so they know. God has revealed to them that the younger will rule over the older. The younger, the older will serve the younger. That's the way that God set it in motion. The children are born, they grow up, and what, what do Isaac and Rebecca do? Well, they do it the wrong way, I can tell you that. Because what they do, besides choosing favorites, I mean, are you just aghast at that? You know, Rebecca loved Jacob, um, and Isaac loved Esau. Uh, and, and, and that, those were their loves. Those were their passions. And they doted on them and they set them up for the scenario that you get at the end of this, uh, chapter 25. They, they put them in the position of having this, this combative relationship that's going to go on into the future. Because knowing the promise, they didn't move their children in the direction that God had ordained for them. Instead, they kept them on their proper, they kept them on their track. Isaac had a love for game, for wild game, and he loved his son Esau to go out into the fields and to hunt for him and to come prepare that. He loved him. He doted on him. And because he did that, and because Rebecca stayed at home with Jacob, they set the situation up that we see uh, which comes along. And, and it's terribly disruptive. And it's disruptive in our lives as well in this sense, right? It's disruptive because when we hear that God sets these things in motion, that God is the one that chooses and ordains and is sovereign, tomorrow's Independence Day, okay? And a lot of us um, think we're independent of God as well. We struggle with that. We have an independent streak in us as, as Americans, right? Those of us who are, there's this independent streak. We've, we kind of do it our way. We do it, wow, we've got freedom. We can do it however we want to do it. And the Bible presents a God to us that is sovereign over everything. Listen, we just confessed this morning in Heidelberg Catechism, not a hair falls from our head without what? The will of our Father in heaven. That's biblical. That's what the Bible teaches. And so here is a God who sovereignly administers. And listen, we have no idea how he's sovereignly administering things. This is all hindsight for us. But the Bible 
tells us that God sovereignly administers these things. And He ordains. He raises up. He draws down. He lifts up. He, he brings down because He is the Creator of the universe, the sovereign governor of everything that happens. Now, finally, I want you to see the grace that prevails. Final scene in the story. Jacob, home with Rebekah, cooking stew. Esau's out coming in from the open country. He's hungry. He's famished. He petitions Jacob for some of his stew. Jacob is being very shrewd. No doubt, he no doubt knows his impulsive brother, right? He knows he's got this brother that's very impulsive. And so he counters, right? He'll give him some stew if he gives him his birthright. Now, right here you kind of ask this question. I do. Why did Jacob push for the birthright? He no doubt had been told it was his. But why would he push for the birthright if it was already his? And that's a good question. Why did he push for Esau to give up his birthright for a bowl of stew? And I want you to hold that. Verse 32, Esau responds. What does he say? Look at me, Jacob. I'm about to die. If I, here's essentially what he's saying. If I die, what good is the birthright? Right? In other words, if you don't give me the stew, I'll die and you'll get the birthright. Not good, not good enough for Jacob. Jacob comes and says, swear to me. Fest, fest, you know, give me, swear by God's name, swear to me that you will give me the birthright if I give you the stew. And of course Esau does just that. He gulps down the stew and he leaves. He wasn't about to die. His stomach was driving him. He was an impulsive young man. And his impulsivity rises up because he had a hunger pain in his belly. What a picture. In that picture, in the second half of Genesis 25, what we have, the Bible painting for us a picture of two boys doing it their way, their own way. And for Jacob, at least, it's a story that gets worse, a lot worse before it ever gets better. But in and through all of it, the prevailing story, the bigger story is this. God loves him. He's a rascal. Listen, early in this story in Jacob's life, he is a bad dude. But you know what? The Lord loves him. The Lord pursues him graciously, lovingly. He pursues him. Listen, if that doesn't, if that, when I read it, when I see that, my mom and dad are here this morning. I breathe a nice, deep sigh of relief. You mean the Lord can love me too? (laughs) Yes. Why? Because grace wins. God's grace prevails in Jacob's life. Not because Jacob is doing life right, even though he's in the struggle, and that's what we'll see, is we'll see a man battling, struggling, knowing his demons, knowing he's not doing it the right way, coming back to God, wrestling with God, returning to God, offering his praise and his sacrifice to God, and then struggling again. 
If that doesn't grip your heart, if that doesn't say to you, listen, God, that's me. I struggle with that day in and day out. Then nothing, nothing will grab you because that, that is the kind of story that the Bible presents to us. God sees fit that grace prevails in his life. It's a wonderful reminder that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. If you're here this morning, you've come by faith to Christ. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. He will not let you go. Marian, come up and sing the song for us, right? Deep and wide and high and all of that is the love of God. And it's true. John chapter 6, verse 37. We're moving to the supper. All that the Father gives to me, Jesus says, will come to me. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I'll never drive away. For I have come down to, from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. That I shall not lose any that he has given to me, but I will raise them up on the last day. Listen, this morning, set before you as we come to the Lord's Supper, is what we term a means of grace. And here's what I want you to hear. It's a means of grace for your struggle. And I use that word struggle purposely because as we jump into the life of Jacob, it's a word that we'll become familiar with intimately. The supper is not. I want you to hear me emphatically. If you can't confess your sin, the supper is not for you because you're not in the struggle. You're, you're doing it your way. You still think you can muster all that God needs from you. That somehow you can do enough good works that He'll receive you and accept you when what He's telling you is you can't ever do enough good works to please me and satisfy me. I want you to trust in what I've done for you. And so the supper is for those who are in the struggle, not for those who have it all together. The supper is for every man, woman, boy, or child who's running the race, who needs a tangible reminder that Jesus died for you. And yes, for us, hopefully, it's deja vu all over again. That God loves you. He's pursuing you with His grace and with His mercy. Let me pray for us. Father, You're good and we thank You for Your love. We thank You for the way in which You've met us. The way in which You come to us, both in Your Word and in the person of Christ and in the supper this morning. And Father, we ask that um, as we come to this table that You will remind us once again of the great lengths to which You've gone to call us Your own. And we praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's my encouragement to you as we come to the supper, okay? <clears throat> if you're a member of an evangelical church in good standing, if you're trusting in Christ alone for your salvation, the supper is set for you. If you're here this morning in your grievous sin or you have not made that kind of public profession of faith in Christ, then my invitation to you is to let the supper pass you by and take it as an opportunity um, to pray to cry out to the Lord. The Apostle Paul says this, Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man should examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. 
For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. And that's why many of you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. That's the invitation to the table. It's not my table. It's not our table. It's not a Presbyterian table. It's the Lord's table. And that's the encouragement that comes to us from Scripture. Let's stand and let's sing together um, verses uh, 1 and 2 of hymn 324, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Apostle Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this meal that's set before us. We pray now that you would take both the juice and the bread and that you would use them in our lives as a means of grace to strengthen and to build up our faith, for we are weak. And as we run this race, Father, as we are on this journey, Lord, we need every possible aid. So we thank you for your word. We thank you for the supper. Now use it in our lives, all for your glory, for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.